I spoke to you earlier about purification and that this is one could say that is the spiritual path and if one doesn't have had any interest in that yet in purification of oneself and it doesn't concern necessarily physical food then the spiritual path hasn't opened up yet it's a purification on the spiritual path of heart and mind and I've already told you that all concentration is automatic purification however that's not good enough and not effective enough because most people aren't concentrated enough and besides they don't meditate enough it would mean that one has to be at it constantly and that's not really practical it doesn't make sense so one has to do the same sort of purification in daily living and that's where it becomes an essential point of everyday life if one has any interest at all in spiritual growth and development and as it becomes a point in daily living one more and more brings the mind to the ability also to meditate that two go hand in hand you cannot expect a meditative mind one hour a day and then have it the other waking hours 16 hours a day doing anything it wants trying to get as much pleasure and comfort as it can get it just doesn't make sense and yet most people don't think about it they'd rather do what pleases them to do so if we really mean it seriously that we would like to meditate and get beyond only the sensual and the mental realm into a realm where a totally different perspective opens up for ourselves and the world we have to have that purification system during our daily life the Buddha's guidelines are explicit and totally simple but that doesn't mean that it's simple to do it's hard work but it's the most rewarding work that anyone ever can do the rewards are manifold in one's inner life so the first thing is that we recognize the fact that there is heart and mind now in Pali in the Buddhist language it's the same word for both citta but in our language we have to distinguish otherwise we don't know what we're talking about one of the injunctions of the Buddha's teaching is to have absolutely precise language for the Dhamma, the teaching with that precision we distinguish between our thinking processes the mental, the mind and our emotions, the heart and in both the purification needs to take place so for the mental processes the Buddha gave a very precise and distinctive formula and if one has the information of this formula the next step is to remember it and then to actually practice it and only when one starts practicing it this does one find out that it isn't as easy as it may sound the formula is this 
not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen, to make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, to make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. In other words, to have personal knowledge and understanding of one's thinking process. Labeling in everyday life and recognizing that every unwholesome thought is unskillful and therefore makes us ourselves unhappy. Whether other people get affected is a second matter and they often do because they haven't learned to protect themselves just as we haven't against the different mental states that are being used by other people and the other emotions. They are dependent upon it. So we also affect others. But primarily we affect ourselves. So with that, affecting ourselves, we have to also start taking responsibility. And with that we have to look at what I call not to blame the trigger. We have a great number and variety of triggers. In fact, they are so innumerable that everybody's got their pet ones and has usually a list of pet triggers and it's called I can't stand this or I can't stand people like that and I can't stand uh, television or I can't stand not having television or whatever this one can't stand. Those are one's pet triggers. And one feels totally justified in disliking whatever it is. But what one actually does, one hurts oneself. The thought process which is negative makes oneself unhappy. The Buddha compared getting angry with picking up hot coals with one's own bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody. We may wind up with somebody who has learned to duck and at that time we're only hurting ourselves. Anybody who has practiced long enough knows how to duck. So the one who picks up the hot coals is the one who gets burned. And everybody has been burned. And unfortunately, we don't even believe in this very old saying, the burned child chides the fire. We keep on having the same fire over and over again. We get angry over and over again because we believe that the triggers are at fault and not the anger. So what we can do in the first place is to recognize our own responsibility. Only if we do that do we start practicing. Practicing doesn't mean sitting on a little pillow. That's just one part of practice. One single part of a variety of purification. That doesn't mean practicing. It just means sitting on a pillow. That's all it means. And it may mean anything. It may be daydreaming. It may be mean uh, actually trying to be concentrated. It may mean that one goes along with one's friends. It may mean anything at all. But it doesn't necessarily mean practice. So we have to first recognize the fact that we ourselves are responsible for whatever happens 
in our inner life. And having taken that responsibility, stop blaming the trigger and labeling what goes on and having labels substituting. So if an unwholesome thought which has not yet arisen is liable to arise, it takes a great deal of mindfulness to recognize that. That means usually long time practice. But recognizing an unwholesome thought that has already arisen, that shouldn't be difficult for anyone. The dislike, the rejection, the resistance, the fear, the anger, the anxiety, the worry, the pride and the envy, anything like that, it's very easy to recognize. And having taken responsibility for that oneself and not blaming the trigger anymore should make it quite simple to understand that it needs to be changed. So the, the formula is recognition, no blame, change. There's nobody to blame. This is a human dilemma. Everybody suffers from it. It's totally universal. Everybody's got it. If anybody here hasn't seen it yet in themselves, they haven't paid attention. But nobody is quite that blind. We usually do know that we react negatively. As unfortunately, we think there's somebody else at fault. I like to compare it with a jack-in-the-box. A jack-in-the-box is a very nice toy, a little box where there's a doll inside sitting on a spring. And the child just needs to touch the lid lightly and the doll jumps out. So then somebody might come along and pull that doll out of the box. And then the child can hit the lid with a hammer and nothing jumps out. The jack-in-the-box sits in here. Some people just need to be touched lightly and it jumps out. And others you have to hit a little harder and it jumps out. But anybody who's got the jack-in-the-box sitting in here, it will jump out. That's its nature. That's human nature. Until we have transcended those levels of human nature and the jack-in-the-box is finally removed and then nothing jumps out. It can come with a hammer. That jumping out is our reaction which makes most people make most people pretty unhappy, their reactions. Some people are quite aware of them and have them have their knowledge that this goes on from morning to night and would prefer to have it stopped but haven't figured out how. There's no reason why we should figure it out ourselves. It needs a spiritual genius like the Buddha to figure it out. That's why we have the teachings. We can't figure it out ourselves. If we had, why didn't we stop it long ago, all these reactions? So the first thing is taking responsibility for one's own reactions, not blaming the trigger, recognition, no blame for the trigger, nor for ourselves, and then change. And the change is the substitution. The substitution of the unwholesome with the wholesome. And that needs to go on all day long. Every time we have a negative reaction, we're making bad karma. Whether it is in speech or action makes no difference. It's the thought that starts it. The thought makes bad karma. The more bad karma we make, the more difficult our lives become. Progressively more difficult. 
The more good karma we make, the easier our life becomes, progressively easier. There's nobody else involved, only our own karma making. Every negative thought makes bad karma, whether we ever say it or do anything about it, doesn't matter. The thought is, of course, the mildest karma, but it is the instigator of it. We can't do anything or say anything that we haven't thought about first. We've got to think it before we can say it. We've got to think it before we can do it. Most people don't even have enough mindfulness to recognize that. That's all right. It takes practice to recognize that. Practice means in daily life. Meditation is extremely helpful, naturally, but it isn't all of it. There is daily living that makes a great deal of difference. And most of our life goes on in daily living, doesn't it? And very little of our life goes on in meditation. So if we rely on that little to change the lot, that's not sensible, is it? It's the lot that can change the little. So from morning to night, we live our daily life. Having had an unwholesome thought, it doesn't take much wisdom to know what's unwholesome. Anything that creates even the slightest bit of anxiety. Naturally, that which creates a lot of anxiety, that's easy. But even the slightest bit of anxiety, the slightest bit of negative reaction, the slightest bit of dislike, all of that is unwholesome. And we do need to start with the small things because they're much easier to handle. And having found out how to handle a small thing makes it then easier to handle a big one. So if we hate somebody wholeheartedly, that's a difficult one. Maybe we could start with a few dislikes, like people disliking hot weather, certain foods, people who say certain things, fashion, anything at all that creates even the slightest dislike. Investigate why. What's wrong with it? Well, what's wrong with it? It creates an unpleasant feeling within that person. And since we're always out for pleasant feelings, we dislike that which creates the unpleasant one. Totally unnecessary. We can look at it and say, unpleasant feeling and pleasant feeling are all part of human life. And then the whole thing is finished with small things. But with the bigger ones, which really make life difficult, when there is a certain person where we have really negative thoughts about that person, then the negativity within gets established. And the more we keep it, the deeper the ruts in the mind the harder it is to get out of it. The longer it's there, the more it becomes a habit. And eventually it becomes such a habit that it can be seen in the facial lines and it can be heard in every word a person is saying because it's become habitual, the negativity. So one should be on guard against that. For whose well-being? Only for one's own. But if there is a person who has ease and well-being and peacefulness, others can be helped by that. So the negativity in the mind, which then comes out maybe in the speech or in the action, 
is something that we can substitute as soon as we have recognized our own responsibility and are aware of the ability to change our mind. And who hasn't said that in the past? I just changed my mind. Why not? We can change it any time at all. But we need to change it deliberately. And that, of course, only a trained mind does. So we start somewhere. The first time you do it, have some negativity in the mind, and you deliberately change that. You will feel a great sense of relief and a great sense of self-confidence. Look at that. I could actually change it from the unwholesome to the wholesome. It works. Having had it work once, it obviously will work again. It will not work every time. That takes time. But it will work again, certainly. And that self-confidence then translates also into our emotional life. Because self-confidence means that we're no longer believing to be dependent upon the emotions and thoughts of others. We can change when we want to. Now, obviously, meditation is bound up with that. In the meditation, we strengthen the mind because we keep it in place. We stop it from jumping around like a grasshopper all over the place, but keep it in one spot. So obviously it gains muscles from that. The mind has to have muscles in order to accomplish anything. The same as the body. The body needs muscles if it wants to accomplish anything. And we do think of that as far as the body is concerned, but who thinks of it in the mind? So the meditation which strengthens the muscles of the mind makes it also easier to do that substitution in daily life. Now, obviously, everybody washes their body every single day, maybe more than once. But what do we actually wash? One sixteenth of an inch of skin. Nobody wants to believe that they're only skin. And yet, how are we going to get at the other stuff? And although we don't believe that we're only the skin, it seems extremely important, the color of it, and that it isn't wrinkled, and doesn't have blemishes, and is nice and clean. And who believes that they're only skin? I call skin our gift wrapping. If that wasn't wrapped around, we would look a bit funny but might be a little less attached. So with that cleaning process of the skin, which isn't necessarily us as anybody knows, but very few people actually act upon, we do need another cleaning process. And the substitution of the unwholesome, the negative with the positive, is that cleaning process. There is no other for the mind. Now, our thinking is very often a reaction to the sense contact, to what we see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. It's not so much 
a reaction to our abstract thinking. That also happens, of course. But during daily living, it's very much bound up with the sense contact and very much bound up with being judgmental. But it is quite obvious that we haven't been asked to be judge and jury in this life, that we're all self-appointed. And self-appointed judge and jury is totally illegal. So all the time we're judging and discriminating, it is making it all up. We are making it all up. We don't have any real basis for it. It's all strictly opinion. And opinion is something that creates a fullness of mind. The more opinions one has, the fuller the mind is with them, of course, where the ability to change one's mind becomes less and less, and where it becomes less and less possible to purify it. Because opinions are usually very attached to what we have an opinion about, so we're stuck. To see an unwholesome thought before it arises means that we become aware of the feeling that it sends ahead. It sends ahead a foggy, a distracted, a heavy, sometimes a depressed feeling. And an unwholesome thought is bound to follow. So we have to be in touch with our feelings. It's a little more difficult than seeing the unwholesome thought when it has already arisen. We can deliberately put wholesome thoughts into our mind. Now wholesome thoughts concern love and compassion for others, helpfulness, generosity, giving, less egocentricity. Whatever is bound up with wanting for ourselves is egocentricity. Whatever is bound up with trying to help others will be a feeling of lightness and relief in the heart. So besides having the thought processes which we need to purify, we also have our emotions. Now, just as the Buddha gave four steps in the formula for the thought, he also gave four supreme emotions, which are the only ones worthwhile having. All the others could be usefully discarded. And the genius of the Buddha's teaching lies in the fact that there are precise guidelines. But as I said before, and I will repeat again, the first thing is to get the information which is available right here at the moment. Second thing is to remember, and the third thing is to practice. Otherwise, the most precise and wonderful guideline will never do any good to the person who's heard it. So the four supreme emotions are also called, in Pali, the Brahma-viharas, which means the abode of the gods. But it hasn't got anything to do with up there in heaven. 
What it means is that if we actually cultivate and develop them, we can have heaven on earth, namely in our own heart. And we never need to be afraid of our own reaction anymore. We never need to feel threatened by other people because having cultivated those emotions within us, they are the foundation for our own well-being. And as they become the foundation for our own well-being, we recognize them for what they are. They are not dependent upon that which is around us. Now these four are love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. I'll tell you something about love in the Buddhist sense. The word love derives from the Sanskrit and Pali word lopa, L-O-B-H-A, and in Pali it means greed. What we think about when we think about love has nothing to do what the Buddha taught. When we hear the word love, we think automatically of a one-to-one -one relationship. And then the mind maybe gets an idea, or maybe there's more to it, maybe it's in a family, two or three people. Or maybe it's even love for an ideal. Or maybe it's love for something abstract. But it's always got to have a focus, particularly another person, and preferably one that loves us. But that that doesn't work, I dare say, most people find out pretty quickly. Because it's bound up with fear. And fear can only be experienced for what we hate. It doesn't mean that we hate the other person. What it means is that we hate the idea of losing the other person because our love is dependent upon one person out of five billion which that isn't absurd. It is dependent upon the fact that the other person doesn't change heart and mind, which is also absurd because everything changes constantly. So with that dependency upon another person's emotions and thoughts, we fear the change. And yet, everybody knows subconsciously or consciously, some know it consciously, that everything changes all the time. One's own heart and mind and other people's heart and mind. So this fear is then underlying the so-called love and therefore makes it quite impure. It can never be independent. The Buddha's explanation of love is that it's a quality of the heart and not dependent upon somebody or something that's lovable. If we want to find somebody who is totally and utterly lovable, we would have to find an enlightened person, and of those there are very few around, and we ourselves are not totally lovable, so how do we expect somebody else to be totally lovable? It's a totally unrealistic expectation, which is constantly rewarded with disappointment. Most people have gone through this, two, three, four, five, six, ten times in their life, and having had it happen so many times, still don't know what is the cause. 
Love is a quality of the heart which can be developed and cultivated and has nothing to do with the focus of it. When it becomes the quality of the heart which has been developed and cultivated, then it comes out no matter what is available around. So this is a learning situation which unfortunately is not used in our learning institutions. From the time that we get into kindergarten or even earlier than that, we cultivate and develop minds, more information, more connections made. But there aren't any learning institutions available to develop and cultivate heart. So we've got to be our own learning institution. And that happens when we become sick and tired of our own reactions and no longer would like to get on with that. We would like to have an absolute change. Until that time, we may still have what I call the if list. If my partner was nicer and more considerate, if the children finally grow up, if the neighbors don't turn the radio on so loud, if I could make more money and have a trip around the world, if my boss would be more understanding, a list without end, because once one crosses off one if, one finds another. As long as we have an if list, we think that the world is going to be adamant to our request. Only when we find that we have exhausted most, most of the ifs and have understood that the rest of them aren't going to do it either, then we will start being our own learning institution. And as we become our own learning institution, we will see that this is not so easy, but possible. And that's the purification which is needed in order to meditate properly. And meditation is needed in order to purify properly. So it's catch-22. But if one doesn't do the two in conjunction, one's always going to be at the loose end of the one or the other, because they both don't work then. They have to help each other. So meditation can never be practiced outside of the context of a spiritual practice in daily life, which does not mean rites and rituals, but means purification of one's own, of one's own self. If we have finally come to the point where the if list is no longer important, if the world has been seen for what it is, a place where things constantly change and where we can only satisfy the senses and nothing else, then we will start. And we will start this development within ourselves. And starting this development within ourselves is a daily challenge. All of us meet people everywhere, every day. Sometimes more people, sometimes less. Everybody meets people that they're not particularly fond of. Sometimes one meets people that one doesn't like at all. 
and others that we meet are those that we desire. None of that cultivates unconditional love. On the contrary, the one creates the desire to be loved, which is also an absurd undertaking, because to be loved is the love of another person and not our own. And also, it's nothing but an ego support. Look at me, I'm so lovable. And then that person should change their mind, and all of a sudden, we're no longer lovable. Actually, nothing has changed except the mind of the other person. But it's considered very often to be a tragedy, because the other person changed their mind. So what happens when we decide that we're going to take matters into our own heart and not into other people's hearts means that we're starting to cultivate our own love quality within us. And then we no longer become judge and jury of who could be loved and who could not. But we try particularly with anyone, anywhere, anytime. Obviously, that's not going to work all the time, but sometimes it will, because the heart does have the ability to love. It just hasn't exercised it sufficiently. It's just like a body. All bodies which are healthy and still not very old have the ability to run. If one doesn't exercise, one is puffing. It's exercising it the ability to love. And that doesn't mean passion. It just means the warmth of the heart that goes out to another, indiscriminating, not judge and jury, accepting of what there is. In order to do that successfully, we have to first accept and love ourselves. And that is usually difficult for most people. And why? Because we know so many things about ourselves which aren't lovable. Well, that too is a human condition. And knowing so many people, so many things about ourselves which aren't lovable, we stop loving ourselves and start blaming ourselves. And with that, we have the open door to blame everybody else because they're equally unlovable as we are. They do all the silly things that we either also do or would never do. But the only reason we know that they're thinking, saying and doing them is because we know all about it through our own investigation that we have it too. If we can't love ourselves in spite of everything we know about ourselves, we're not going to love anybody. People often say, and mean it, that they can love others better than they can love themselves. It's a hope and a prayer. It doesn't work. One can love others to the extent one loves oneself. When one has the kind of feeling about oneself that is accepting, appreciating, at ease, contented, and not judgmental, certainly knowing what needs to be changed but not blaming, then one can start doing the same thing for others. Now, obviously, we need methods 
we need methods for everything because otherwise we don't know how to go about it. Everybody knows from the time we were very small, love thy neighbor as thyself. Well known, huh? How to do it? And who's doing it? And who knows that you first have to love thyself before you can love thy neighbor? How to go about it? Everybody agrees on it. It's a very nice sentiment, isn't it? And if we would like a world in which there would be some little more love, who's going to do it? The neighbor or oneself? If not me, who? If not now, when? Is there any other time? The mind, as you must have noticed in meditation, loves to go to the future if it doesn't happen to be occupied with the past. The future is the yet to come. It never arrives. When it arrives, it's always the present. Tomorrow never comes. When it comes, it's always called today. There is no future. It's only present that can be lived. And if we want to live our life, and everybody thinks we do, we've got to stop thinking about it. We've got to experience it. And as we experience it, it's got to be this moment. We can't experience the past, it's all gone. We can't experience the future. It may never come. Who knows? People don't have a written guarantee how long they're going to live. Maybe over any time. So if we really want to live life, we've got to experience it. And if we want to experience it, we've got to learn to be here now. And if we can be here now, we can also meditate. We can put the attention on this moment, and that's when the breath is going, this moment. Well, the same is with our qualities of loving ourselves. There's no future. There's only now to do it. And if we harp on all the negative qualities that we know about ourselves, we'll never learn it. We have to learn to love ourselves in spite of them. Just like a mother loves her child, no matter how very disobedient the child might be. All children have negative qualities. And just because of that, the mother does not withdraw her love. If we could have that kind of attitude towards ourselves, we would have a better chance of living with love in our heart. If we would like to see the world a little better than it is at this moment in time, there's only one thing to do, to purify oneself. It's the only one that we have any jurisdiction over oneself. All the other people will have to do their thing. We are doing our thing. We can talk about peace, we can talk about love. If we don't feel it, it isn't there. It's as simple as that. And the loving feeling can have as it seeded love in the family, but only can be useful if it is considered to be a seedbed. If we can see that, its greatest drawback to being pure is attachment. 
because whatever we are attached to, that we are stuck to. And wherever we are stuck, we can't expand. If we can't expand our heart, it's going to stay as contracted as now. And as it stays contracted, we'll always look for the one, or the two maybe, that we can love. Is that enough? On a planet with five billion people, is that enough in a universe of which we are part, just one? How can that be enough? If we use the family love or the partnership love as a seedbed, at least we know that we are what it feels like to love. Well, that's a big advantage already. And then we can also see the drawbacks in it because we want to be loved back. And very often we feel shortchanged because we're not getting as much as we're giving, we think. We're using love as a marketplace commodity where you get exactly the value that you pay for. Some quite a lot of difficulties arise out of that in relationships because we measure with some sort of worldly measure a quality of the heart which need no me needs no measuring. So if we can see that loving in the family or in the partnership or relationship at least shows us that there is this warmth of feeling and then we try to use that indiscriminately, unconditionally and expand it to others, those around us, not those that we think of in far distant places like Africa. They don't talk back. The ones that are right around us, that are near us, that could possibly say something we don't like, that could possibly do something we don't like, and yet we try to cultivate the same kind of feeling for them as we have for those that we already appreciate. Then we're working on it. And every unpleasant person that we meet is a challenge and we should be extremely grateful. It's not so difficult to love somebody who is really nice and pleasant, appreciative and supportive, caring and concerned. But how about a person who's abusive? That really puts on our, us on our mettle. That's where we have to learn something. And if we can't do it, it doesn't matter. We just see that this is a bit beyond us and that we still have to learn a bit more. So we need those challenges in our lives where we recognize the fact that if we dislike this abusive person, it's going to make us, ourselves, very unhappy. We can't be at ease, we can't be at peace. And if we're not at peace, then of course we are adding to the lack of peace in the world. If we are loving and peaceful, we're adding to the love and peace in the world. We are not alone on this planet. We're not alone in the houses we live in usually. Certainly not alone in the towns and the villages and the cities that we live in. There are people everywhere. We are not only doing this for ourselves. 
if there's love in the heart, we're adding to the love that is in existence. And if we do that, it may be a little easier. But if we don't start with ourselves, we are not coming to the center. Everybody thinks they are the center of the universe. Obviously it's absurd, there couldn't be five billion centers of the universe. Everybody knows it's absurd, and yet everybody thinks it anyway. It's all right, we keep on thinking these things because they're emotionally the only thing that really works for us. So we're in the middle of it all. Well, if we don't love the middle, how are we going to love around, around this middle? It's very important that this love that we have for ourselves is also tinged with wisdom, just like a mother loving her child. The wisdom of knowing what needs changing, but no blaming, just recognition. Recognition, no blame change, is one of the most important formulas to remember, if one wants a spiritual life. And it is also important to remember that meditation does not constitute a spiritual life. It's, it's nothing else is practice. The far enemy of love is hate, of course, and everybody knows that. I've already mentioned the near enemy. I'll just repeat that. The near enemy is attachment. And it's called the near enemy because it seems so similar. The attachment of wanting to keep and wanting to have and calling it my and mine. How can we own another person? We can't even own ourselves. If we were to own this person that we call me, we would probably make quite a lot of changes. But we don't own. So this idea of ownership is the attachment aspect, which makes life extremely difficult because it is based on an illusion. There is no ownership. There's only a voluntary recognition of mutual care and concern. And this voluntary recognition of mutual care and concern should and could include everyone that we come into contact with. Obviously there are situations in everybody's life or in most people's lives where they can't handle a certain person or certain things that happen with a person. One should give it as much energy as one possibly can to try to change one's own attitude so that possibly because out of that change of one's own attitude, the situation changes. But if it doesn't, and if one finds oneself getting more and more negative, and there's no real gain in love in one's heart, one may have to leave that situation. That too is possible. It doesn't mean that one is able to solve every situation because our love is not 100%. With perfect love, we would be able to solve every situation, but nobody needs to think that they have that. It is the prerogative of an enlightened person, and for that, every situation would be all right. But for us, we can admit 
that there is a situation which is beyond us but not blame the other person involved it's just beyond us we haven't practiced enough so maybe one day when we have practiced enough we can come back and then we are able to handle that situation all these things are possibilities but what is the most important aspect is to practice at all times under all circumstances that feeling of mutual care and concern because we are mutually interdependent and if we are the ones that are having the love then of course we are not threatened by other people's hate we are not threatened by other people's dislike we feel totally safe and secure in that feeling of love within and we'll work on that it's something that anybody and everybody can do we don't need any special situation any special teaching anything at all it's something that we can just try to establish just as we have always established knowing more in the mind knowing this and that finding out here and there always wanting to know more now we can establish wanting to love more and when we do that we will find that we are the ones that gain the most the more we love the more love we've got not because somebody loves us that's their love the more we love the more love we have in our own heart the only common sense that goes with that before we start our meditation if you have any questions about this or anything else this is the time to ask them creativity is based on trying to be indifferent certainly that would anger another person no. the only thing that doesn't anger another person more is if you can pour out love to them that is impossible that's like putting the fire out when you can actually have love for the other person and another thing that we can remember is this this life that we're in all of us is like an adult education class it's the only way to look at it if we look at it that way then we know what to do with it 
Now, when we went to school or university, we had our exams. And they were nice enough to tell us when they would happen and what the topic would be. So we could bone up about it. In life, nobody tells you when it happens and nobody tells you the topic. If we don't pass the exam, we get the same thing over and over again until we finally see that, that this has to be passed. So if we get the same thing happening again, it's very important to remember, aha, must be the same exam again, it just has a different name this time. Last time was called John and this time it's called Peter. So, and then having passed it, maybe, then we don't get it again. Or if not, we'll get it again, just like we did in school, have to go through the same class again. That's the most useful way of looking at our life in this world and all the potential and sometimes real abuse that is meted out and the difficulties that everybody encounters. So if that can be helpful, maybe. Can think about it. <laughs> See if that's of any use. <laughs> yes. Uh, there is. Yes. Yes, there is a great deal uh, to be said about compassion, and uh, I thought maybe I'll leave that till tomorrow. Okay? <laughs> and it is different, yes. So I'll leave that. Go, okay? Anything else? explain to you the uh, difference between meditation and contemplation and then we'll do a contemplation together. Now contemplation is an extremely important aspect of spiritual life and of the spiritual path because it's geared towards insight and the path of the Buddha leads to insight. It leads to the kind of insight which is totally different from the ordinary kind of everyday reality in which everything is embedded in duality. It's either you or me or them and us, it's good or bad, it's tomorrow or yesterday, and within that framework there is never to be found any real satisfaction. So insight will have to go further than that. In order to gain it we need calm mind, which we try to get by staying on the breath as one of the meditation methods. And insight through contemplation, but also through the fact that we actually label the thought process, which should bring some insight. And in daily life, in labeling our thoughts and emotions, which should also bring some insight. Now, contemplation is only for insight. In contemplation, we take a subject, 
a subject which would have universal truth and related to ourselves and see whether it has significance and not only that but how we can use it that truth how we can use it to have a different attitude towards ourselves and the world around us our attitudes are causing our problems the attitudes that we have are concerned with getting whatever it may be that we want getting happiness getting peace getting concentration getting friends getting love whatever it may be it's getting and that's the worldly way and it doesn't work now i'd like you to check that out whether it works or not there's nothing to believe nor disbelieve the only thing to do is to check it in the spiritual life there is only one thing to do and that's letting go so when we contemplate we have a chance to see that whether our preconceived notions opinions are forgetting something or for letting go and when we find that they're forgetting we will see that they do not produce peace of mind when they are geared towards letting go we can see very easily that they are giving us some peace the more we let go the more peace we have it's as simple as that but most people can't let go of those things which produce the greatest problems and that's why the kind of contemplation which we're going to do now can be extremely helpful it need not be it depends entirely upon the attitude with which one does it does one really want to know or does one would want to rather stay a little bit further away from it these contemplations that we're going to do are called the five daily recollections and the buddha recommended that every person recollect these five things every single day of their lives it's very helpful because as we do recollect these every single day of our lives they become second nature and we don't have to remind ourselves we don't have to force ourselves to know about them they are part and parcel of our thought process and everything that we think also influences other things we think we're influenced by our underlying tendencies so the more we can let go the easier it is to think along lines which bring peace and happiness it's all totally opposed to what the world does and it's just the other way around but it doesn't show outwardly it just shows within one's own frame of mind these daily recollections are not designed to bring any kind of grief or pain on the contrary they are designed to reduce grief and pain eliminate it finally the buddha said there's only one thing i teach and that suffering and its end to reach now that does not mean that the suffering in the world is going to come to an end but the sufferer is going to come to an end which does not mean physical death it means insight so when we recollect and contemplate 
the things which we're going to do now, they are laws of nature, which we would like to forget or change to our liking, which is a very strange habit that humanity has, wanting to change the laws of nature. And we are all subject to them. In fact, we depict the laws of nature. And there's nothing to be done with them other than recognition and then deduction what it means. So the way we're going to do it is I'm going to say the sentence which we're going to contemplate and you please repeat it after me which could help to remember it. And then I will say something about it to help you to contemplate it. It is always a universal truth which always needs to be referred to individuality, to each person, from the universal to the individual. If we consider ourselves as having completely personal or individual understanding or problems, we've missed the boat. We're all in this together. And humanity has aspects which are the same for everyone. That's why, if taken seriously, everybody can learn to meditate, not just some people. But one has to, of course, keep on trying. In order to start, please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. <coughs> Now please repeat after me. I'm of the nature to decay. I have not got beyond decay. Now I'd like you to investigate whether this is a true statement, whether you've actually noticed it, and if you have noticed it, whether you would like to resist that law of nature, make it come untrue, or whether you have already deducted some understanding from that law of nature of decay.
I'm of the nature to be diseased. I have not got beyond disease. Now, with that, it's not necessarily the sickness of the body. It can be the unease, the dis-ease of the mind. And we can investigate whether one has had that happen in the past or in the present, and one can see whether it has any causes lying in oneself. And if we can find that, that it is happening, that there are causes for it, one may actually see also that the mind is the more active member between mind and body. of the nature to die, I have not got beyond death. Well, obviously, we need not investigate whether this is true. Everybody knows it. But what we do have to investigate is whether we live our life knowing that and therefore choosing the right priorities and whether we're ready for it at any given time, which could be now. And if not, why not?
all that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. Here we need to investigate whether this has been true in the past of people that we call mind, situations, experiences, feelings, thoughts, material belongings. Have they changed or vanished? And if it is true, what about that? What we hold dear now? Are we determined to hang on to it? And what about our own body and mind? Will we be able to hang on to it? I am the owner of my karma. If we contemplate that, we can find that we need to take responsibility for everything that happens to us in this life because we own the effects of the causes that we have put into motion. That's about the only ownership that we could claim. Are we really taking responsibility? related to my karma. We can look at it this way, it's the closest relationship that we will ever have and it's the one that we have to come to terms with because we are that relationship ourselves. 
karma is cause and effect, what we have caused, that will be the result in our life. supported by my karma. The strongest support system that we can find anywhere is good karma that we have made through thought, speech and action. The strongest support that is possible. Whatever karma I shall make, that I will inherit. If we would like to have a valuable inheritance, it's entirely up to us ourselves to manufacture that. And that brings us to this moment, because we're making karma in every waking moment. It's our intention which is sometimes not even known to us. This can create, if it is contemplated properly, can create in the mind a determination to make good karma and more of it. If you would like to ask any question about the contemplation, you can do that now before it slips away from your mind. Uh, 
I'm... Yes, they certainly are. The, uh, the ownership and the relationship, they are closely related, but there's a small distinction uh, that we can see that we already have all these uh, uh, effects in us, but now we can make new ones. The ownership is there already, and the relationship. But what karma we make now, that will be the inheritance tomorrow. No, I don't know what you're saying. I can't hear very well with all this traffic. Oh, yes. Well, the ownership is that what you have already. The relationship is that what you've got to come to terms with. It's no use blaming another. And the support is, our, is the effect we have in this life, right now. And what we're making is our new inheritance. So some comes from, from what we've already done. We have to accept it because it's no use blaming. And we can do new ones now. That's the last one, the inheritance. Can you see the distinction? Yes. Yes. That's right. Yes. This, uh, you have to speak louder. I can't hear a word. <laughs> the decay. Yes. Was the Buddha referring to decay of the body only, or to decay of that and other? It's primarily in this case the, the decay of the body, but you can refer to it also as the decay of the mind, because the Buddha also said that unless you grow uh, in spiritually and uh, mentally, of course, and emotionally, uh, you go backwards. There's no standing still. Yes. What biological reality do you mean with renewal? Mm -hmm. You're not going to be 15 again. Well, for a while. <laughs> Wait till you get a little older. <laughs> no, that's a biological dream. <laughs> There's no reality to that one. Have you looked at old people lately? In minor, in minor matters sometimes, sure. But why does it get older and older and older and dies? 
You're talking about this life, don't you? Yes, well, the decay, you can look at your teeth, the skin, the hair, and have a look and see whether that actually does renew itself. Maybe the skin might be good. And what about teeth? Do they? So have a look. It's a hope and a prayer. <laughs> no reality to it. <laughs> Anything else? You see, the thing is that if you want to look at it that way, then when it doesn't fall through, you'll feel unhappy about it. Why not look at the truth and accept it and say, yeah, that's the way it is. Maybe teeth and skin might be the easiest one to see that. Anything else? We'll do a guided loving-kindness meditation now, which is another method and sometimes very effective. In order to get started, please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. of yourself as your own best friend, caring, loving, and helpful, filling yourself with the depth of that friendship, embracing yourself with the loving care and concern that a best friend has. of yourself as the best friend of the person sitting nearest you in this hall. Fill him or her with the depth of your friendship, surrounding him or her with the care and concern and helpfulness of a loving friend.
Now think of yourself as the best friend of everyone here, taking everyone into your heart, being caring and concerned about each one here, filling each person with friendship, embracing each person with love and compassion like a best friend would. Now think of yourself as the best friend of your parents, filling them with friendship and gratitude from head to toe, and embracing them with love and helpfulness and care, like a best friend would feel. Think of yourself as the best friend of those people that are nearest and dearest to you. Those that you might live with. Be their best friend. Caring and concerned and helpful and loving. Without expecting the same thing in return. Now think of all your good friends and be their best friend at their disposal, wanting to help, having a deep and profound relationship with them. Fill them with your friendship, surround them with your love, not expecting to get the same back.
think of those people whom you meet in your everyday life, your neighbors, the people at work, on the street, in the shop, in the offices, whoever you might be able to think of who is part of your daily life, be their best friend. Fill them with love and compassion, embrace them in friendship. Make them a real part of your inner life so that they can feel it. of anyone whom you may find difficult or if there is no such person anyone towards whom you're quite indifferent and make that person also your friend be that person's best